Well, good morning. And uh, so this morning we're in Mark chapter 8. Um, it's a very, uh, very short section. We're only going to look at verses 31 through 33. If you turn there with me now, I'll read those. Chapter 8, verse 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How quickly, how quickly Peter falls <laughs> from his high, high place. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you um, that he dwelt among us, uh, that he uh, left um, his ministry here for us to examine, for for his ministry as we read it to examine us. We, we thank you for the interaction of your word and prayer. We thank you for your this service that we get to come um, and join to, in together, this, this oneness that we experience because uh, you and the Son are one and because he has made us one with one another and one with you. That there is so much to be grateful for. There is so much uh, deep and mysterious um, things to learn about you and about ourselves, about this world. We pray, Lord God, that we would not grow weary, that we would not grow slack, that we would not, um, uh, that we would just always be zealous, Lord, to, to get closer to you, to know more about you, to rejoice more in you. We thank you and we praise you in your Son's name and amen. Now, we have covered the fact that Jesus actually is a prophet. He is a prophet. And it's nice, since he is a prophet, to actually come to a point where he starts doing some prophesying. He's done plenty of rebukes. He, he's done plenty of teaching, like prophets do. But he's done, up to this point, very little actual prophesying. And now what he's going to do in response to his, his followers recognizing that he is the Messiah is he is going to prophesy to them. He's, going to, he's not going to use a parable. He's not going to say it in some mysterious way. He's going to come out and he's going to very clearly, very succinctly tell them exactly who he is and what he is going to do. Sometimes God is not mysterious in what he's doing. Sometimes it's very clear. What, what is fascinating about this particular incident, especially coming off the heels of Peter's uh, profession of faith just a verse before, is, is his reaction. It, right? He, he does not like what Jesus is saying. He doesn't. And he takes it upon himself to set Jesus straight. <laughs> you know, Jesus, you've done a lot of teaching. We really appreciate it. We're here for you, buddy. But let me sit you down and explain a few things to you. Now, I don't know about you, but I have, I'm sure, probably more recently than I care to admit, prayed a prayer like that. Like, okay, God, listen, <laughs> I've read the Bible. Let me tell you a few things about yourself that maybe you didn't know. <laughs> and, and it's funny because it's true. How often are, are, is our reaction, our knee-jerk, instantaneous reaction to the things that God does, like what Peter does here? Right? 
you are the Messiah, I love you, and then somebody cuts us off on the freeway, right? And that worship music that we were just singing to goes, <laughs> and you're cursing people. You're like, how dare you? And, and, and we're going to look at the fact that now many of us, I don't think, walk outside and, and look up to the skies and shake our angry fists. I've only done that probably once that I can remember. But usually that's not how we react to things, right? So we don't think that we're reacting towards God because we're yelling at our wife, right? We don't think that we're reacting towards God because we're disciplining our children in anger. So we think, you know, we think it's here between us. But when, what we need to do is recognize Peter and ourselves from this story. Because I think, day in and day out, the way that we react to things, the way that we react to providence, the way we react to the way God is running this world, is we react exactly like Peter. <laughs> we go from, you're the Messiah, let me take you aside and tell you a few things, because you're not living up to the standard. And, and that is the kind of people that we are. Now, rarely, I, I don't think of another time in the Gospel of Mark where he tells them to be quiet and then follows it up immediately with why they ought to be quiet. He said, don't go and tell anybody that I am the Messiah. And, and the reason is, is because he is going to suffer and he is going to die. And, and the faster word gets out about who they say he is, the faster he's going to die. So he's explaining here. It's not a mystery. Don't go blabbing this to everybody because what they're going to do is they're going to come and they're going to attempt, like they already have, to throw me off a cliff. They're going to come and they're going to want to stone me. Right? But I'm a prophet. And so there is no dying outside of Jerusalem for the prophets. He's still got things to do. So here we have Jesus, the prophet, prophesying. And he's doing it. Imagine how they felt later in life, later, after the resurrection, thinking about this day when they had this interaction. They must have been astounded with the clarity with which he was talking about what was going to happen to him. And, and I'm with Joel. He mentioned it. Prophecies are fascinating in their, in their exactness and yet in their, almost, their slight vagueness. Right? He doesn't actually say he's going to die on a cross. He says he's going to die. Well, how does he know that? How does he know that? He, he knows he's going to be rejected. Well, how does he know that? Right? And, and later when those things happen, right, this is the thing. They want a sign, and he doesn't want to give them one. He tells them, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. So now he's prophesying about the only sign they're going to get, and he wants them to realize it afterwards. He doesn't want them to realize it ahead of time. It's a very strange thing that he's doing here. It is not enough to come here and in our praise say that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not enough. It's not enough for Peter. Look at Peter. Is it enough? I mean, how much closer does he need to be to Jesus? He's there with Jesus telling Jesus he is the Messiah. And is that enough? What do we see Peter do immediately after this? Worshiping Jesus as the Messiah should shape our minds it should shape our minds and thereby our hearts and our hands. We learn from Christ. We learn what to believe and we learn what to do. It, this is called orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, the things that we ought to be believe, and orthopraxy, the things we ought to do. Another fancy way of saying it is credenda and agenda. 
This is why the magazine over there in Moscow for years was called Krenetangenda. Things to be done and things to be believed. And so Jesus here, not satisfied with them where they're at. He's, okay, good job, guys. I'm the Messiah. Now let me tell you about the Messiah. Let me tell you why this is such a big secret. Let me tell you why this is so dangerous. And so what he's going to do now is graciously reveal more to them and more clearly to them than he ever has before. And how do they react? Right? There is a lot going on in just these three verses. But we have to understand, it's not just about what we say. I'm going to read a few verses here because this idea of it being not just what we say is crucial in the New Testament. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Jesus says to them, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Learn from me. Well, what does he want them to learn? Just things to say? No. It's not just about what we confess with our mouth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. It says, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's not just about what you think. It's about then what you put on. It's not just what you put in. It's what you put on. Because you can sit and think all the spiritual, high-minded things about Jesus that you like, but if you're not putting on Jesus, if you're not walking in his ways, if you're not learning from him to imitate him, then it is all just religion. And religion doesn't save anybody. Religion doesn't do anything good for anybody. Jesus, who he is and what he does, that's what saves people. That's what changes people. And, and unless you're willing to both put in the mind and on the body, you're not really following him the way you ought to. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves. Think this way. Think about what this means. Think about what, how, how to apply this. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There's no other way to get it. Who, though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have this mind. His humility. His humiliation. And what did his humiliation lead to? Exaltation. Have this mind among yourselves. He came down from heaven. He was obedient unto death. But he did not stay in the grave because he was exalted to the right hand of God. Have this mind among yourselves. Don't just sit somewhere, right? Don't just go to the park, find a nice bench, Instagram selfie photo yourself thinking deep thoughts with your Bible there. That's what people love. That looks so spiritual these days. Don't just sit around thinking about these things. Do these things. He didn't stay away from us. He didn't stay out of the mess. He was not too proud. He did not think godliness was something to be grasped. Have this mind. And don't just have it in here. Put it on. That is what this whole thing is about. It's not just about what we say. 
Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It's amazing how specific that is. This is the first of three occasions that we're going to get into now in the next couple of chapters on which Jesus carefully, carefully explained to the twelve the cost and meaning of messiahship. Yes, I am the Messiah. Let me explain what that really means. And it reveals gradually a fuller picture because the disciples were better able to see it, right? Remember, he took, he took the blind man aside, healed his vision, asked him, do you see better? Yes, I see better, but I don't see all the way. Okay, now how about now? That is what he's doing here. Okay, good, you see me. Now let me give you a little more. Let me, let me clean those eyes a little bit more and a little bit more. And, and what you'll do over time is see better. He knows it's a process. Mark says that Jesus began to teach them this, implying that it was quite a new point that he was making. And that they could only uh, receive it once that they had declared him, right? They, they said, okay, now you're the Messiah. Now he's ready to go further up and further in with them. It's like any time... Right? You don't sit a child down when you're teaching them math and just start doing the multiplication table. Right? What do you teach them first? Well, you've got to teach them numbers first. How, how good is a kid going to be at adding and subtracting if he doesn't know numbers? <laughs> Not good. Now that they've got their basic numbers down, right? he's not going to teach them how to do complicated algebra. He's simply going to get them to try to add and subtract correctly. And we're going to see how difficult that job is for him. Charlie Brown said that winning isn't everything, but losing ain't anything. And I think we can all heartily agree with that. Right? Thank you, Charlie Brown. Winning isn't everything, but losing isn't anything. And that is a mindset that I think most of us approach most of our lives with. And so why is G... Right? All right, guys, I'm the Messiah, and now what we're going to do is get the crap kicked out of us. We're going to be rejected by the most important people, and then they're going to murder us. So we're going to totally go and lose now. Think about it. Oh, you are the Messiah. You are the son of David. You are this promise that we've been waiting for since Genesis 3.15. goes, yes, and now let's go lose. Let's lose it all. Everything. Um. Okay, well, you know, Jesus, winning, winning isn't everything. I mean, but what are you talking about? You're talking about nothing. You're talking about nothing. All this work. I, I, had, a, I had a good fish, right? Think about poor Peter here. He had a nice boat. He was a very successful fisherman. He had a family. He was following John around, and I mean, John's disciples didn't have to die. He, he had kind of a good thing going, and here Jesus is invading his life, calling him into this, right, to sacrifice all these things and to ultimately do what? Lose? Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what he's being called to. See, this is why I, I said we, we ought to approach this section with fear and trembling. Right? I, this is not, I am not, of all the things I am or I am not, I am not a health and wealth gospel preacher. Right? <laughs> I, come and follow this path, and this path means losing. This path means laying it down. This path, in one sense, in, this, in the worldly sense, means gaining nothing. And yet, how do we receive that? How do we receive that? He's like, okay, I'm glad you guys went to church 
Sunday. That was great. It was a great service. Joel played very well. Amen. And then Jesus comes on Monday, and he's like, here, I'm now going to give you an opportunity where you lose everything that you hold dear, everything that you think is important, every plan that you think you have, because what he offers us is a way of losing everything so that we gain him, which is everything. Do you see? Who do you say he is? That's a good answer. Now listen to what he says about himself and let that, let that be the thing that really judges what you believe and how hard, like how much you're holding on to it. When he comes and says who he says he is, how does that line up with what we've said? How does that line up with what we're doing? How does that line up with what, what we really believe? He is ready to explain deeper things to them, but they're not yet ready to, to embrace it. He, he's beginning to explain more complicated things. He, he again refers to himself as the son of man. Now this phrase, he, he's, he's, he's trying to invite the man a little further and a little further into the word of God to understand it. This phrase he only used twice in the first eight chapters. In the first eight chapters, he uses it twice. He uses it now 12 times between right this moment right here and the end of the book. Now, why? Why do you think he does that? Well, there is this obscure thing in Daniel that people understood to be messianic that they didn't really understand. And this is what it says. Chapter 7 of Daniel. I saw in the night visions and beheld and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Winning sure sounds like everything. I I pity them. That sounds like winning to me, doesn't it? Uh, It doesn't sound like you can win more than that. (laughs) So in the same phrase, he's going to say, I'm the son of man. Okay, now we're talking. Now we're getting somewhere. I am sure glad I left that stinky fishing job because, man, you are somebody. And then he immediately takes this phrase and flips it on its head. Yeah, I I, I may go to the Ancient of Days and be well-received there, but I'm first going to go to the leaders of Israel, and I am not going to be accepted there. Now, and if they are so humble, so willing to follow him no matter what, like Peter is always bragging about, right? what would be the right response here? Amen, brother. That is so confusing, but I am on board. Because I am so into you, Jesus, whatever you say, man. That's not how I understood the phrase. That sure doesn't sound like winning to me, but I trust you, and I'm sure we're going to win in the end. It's going to be great. Right? That's how we think we respond to things. I don't know. That just described me, right? Isn't that how I always respond? Oh, yeah, that doesn't. I don't really understand how that works, but I'm in, and I'm cheerful, and I love you, Jesus. No. This is what happens to us all the time, endlessly. This is the process we're going through. This is us learning to see better. There is this pesky section in Isaiah that all the Jews have forgotten about. 
In fact, if you look at Hebrew Bibles now, there's actually this guy, he's a, he's a Jew for Jesus. He goes around Israel, and his, in, his entire apologetics is about this. They, there is this missing chapter in Isaiah in your Hebrew Bibles. Let me tell you about it. And it's Isaiah 53. <laughs> and he reads to them. He's like, yeah, they've taken this out of most Hebrew Bibles. And you read it, and, you're like, and then, right, this whole, you watch these videos. He's reading this to these Jews, and they're like, well, that's weird. That sounds like Jesus. <laughs> he's like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the poor Jewish nation, they're, they're no more wiser about this now than they were then. They, they still don't accept it. Right? I, I bet you, like, Messianic Judaism, in its conservatism, still thinks of Daniel chapter 7. They're still waiting for that guy. Jesus is saying, okay, guys, I am glad that you think I'm the Messiah. So here, let me, let, now you guys got a bunch of scattered information. Let me start to pull it together for you. Son of man, right? Think son of man, Daniel 7. Now we're going to draw on this other stuff here from Isaiah 53, and we're going to put the two together. And Peter's like, no, those two things don't go together. I, I reject that. I reject that combination. Well, I, Peter, I, I thought you were going to follow him. I thought you'd die for him. I thought, I thought you were all in with Jesus no matter what. Jesus or die, baby. Jesus pulls from a wide range of texts. Texts, right? He understands the Old Testament in its fullness, and he now wants to explain it to them. After the resurrection, do we, right, we all remember later on, he opens up to them and he, and he begins at the beginning and he explains the entire Old Testament to them after the resurrection and what, what they all receive it. So we know what happens. We know that they eventually will accept this message, but they're not there yet. They're not there yet. And this gives me a great deal of hope for myself. Uh, I, I am really glad that I did not have to sit down 15 or 16 years ago and figure it all out on the first day, right? I didn't come up out of the water on a Sunday, by Monday, sit down and, and be like, okay, well, now I've learned Greek and Hebrew. I've learned the Bible backwards and forwards and all the systematic theology books I now have memorized in one day. I just, I have it all in the fullness of my mind and now I'm going to go and live like a saint. Like that, nobody does that. That's what no one is expecting. And if you are expecting that, you're not expecting them, right? This message is for you. Jesus' entire program was humiliation followed by glorification. He humiliates himself and humiliates himself and humbles himself and humbles himself and humbles himself. And God the Father and the, and, and the Spirit are the ones who glorify him. They are the ones who call him forth from the grave. They are the ones who sit him down the right, right hand of God. They are the ones that put the crown on his head. He doesn't do it himself. He doesn't do it himself. His job is obeying unto death. His job is serving. His job is working. His job is obeying his father. He leaves the glorifying to someone else. Peter doesn't like that message. I sure don't like that message because I'm telling you, you know how hard it is to get some glory? It's hard, right? It's a full-time job. <laughs> All I want is a little respect. Can I get just a little respect? 
And, and this is, right, we want, we want to be thought of well at work. We want our, our wives to think well of us, our husbands to think well of us. We want our kids to make, right? I remember as a small kid finding out that my, I, I found out when I was a teenager that my dad actually didn't get all A's in school. And I was quite shocked. <laughs> and, and I would like to say that I didn't carry that tradition on. <laughs> I told him I was a B student. It's not true either. I thought that was a little more humble than A's. See how we do that there? I'm so much humbler than my dad. <laughs> we all want a little respect. We all want a little glory. And, and that is the problem. You deserve none. And you'll get none unless you do exactly the thing that Jesus did. Unless you're willing to humiliate yourself again and again and again and again and go further and further. And the further down you go, the higher and higher and higher God will raise you up. Suffering was Jesus's vocation. Right? I, he was perfected by suffering. People think that he only suffered on the cross, generally. But the cross was like the cherry on the cake. Right? The cross was the, the, the focal point of all the other suffering he'd been doing. If you think about sweet baby Jesus, there he is in the cradle, and he gets these gifts, and one of them is embalming fluid. Could you imagine going to like a Jack and Jill baby party, and you brought like a casket? I mean, could you imagine such a thing? Who, who invited that guy to the party? And he's never welcome in this house again. But how do you think Mary felt when they give her embalming fluid as a baby gift? What, is that, what kind of life is this kid going to lead? He preached, and they tried to throw him off a cliff. He preached, and they tried to stone him. When he was a small child, there were men out trying to murder him. And, and if, if you think about it this way, he, he has to migrate to Egypt just to get away from the murderers. Imagine when you were a kid and you're like, you know, America is no longer safe. What we're going to have to do is pack up and we're going to have to go back to the old country in Europe uh, just to get away from these people who are trying to kill you. Like his suffering did not just come in at the end of the story. His whole life was suffering. There he is at at, uh, Lazarus' tomb weeping. Why does the God of the universe care about one dead guy? This is what I'm, uh, he has better things to do with his time, doesn't he, than one dead dude? Just go win, Jesus, and everybody will be taken care of. Right? Don't worry about that guy, whatever. Just go take care of the head honcho, Satan, and then all this other stuff will work itself out. But why is it that he cares about the one guy? What, what is, right? He is, <laughs> he is a very humble guy. It, it's, it's hard for us to imagine somebody this humble. He's the king of everything. Everything was made in him and through him and for him, and he cares about one dead guy. Suffering for him was a way of life, and that is now he's trying to introduce this to them, the disciples, because we're not even to, right? We haven't even gotten to the point where he tells them they have to do it too. Right? That's coming later. He didn't even, hey, yeah, I'm going to go, and I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to suffer a great deal. And he doesn't even yet get to the part where he says, and you are too. <laughs> and they're already taking him aside and yelling at him. Right? That is not the God they want. Think about this. It's not even, it's not even about what he's calling them to or not calling them to yet. They don't like what he's saying about himself. 
they do not appreciate, they do not accept his self-revelation. Now, we would never do such a thing, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, I laugh at myself. We, we think it's just he gives us hard things to do and we don't like doing them. We don't like what he says about himself. Right? I want to serve a powerful God. I want to serve a God who doesn't take crap from anybody. I want to serve a God who could do anything. I want to serve a God who is so glorious and so majestic all the time, nonstop. It looks a very specific way. And then you see this guy and you think, what is it? Come on. Can't you be a little bit more like the Greek gods? They had some swagger, right? When you, when you get angry, can't you just throw a lightning bolt out of the heavens? Can't you be like Zeus? And this is literally how we think about this. It, it doesn't even come to the commands. We would prefer Zeus, I think, a large part of the time. We would prefer Jupiter. Thor seems pretty cool, right? I mean, he's a god. You're like, man, <laughs> with the hair and the costume and the hammer. I mean, think about it. When he doesn't want somebody to move, he just puts the hammer on top of them and they can't move. Jesus, where's your hammer? Where's your hammer? You want to defeat Satan, you should get a hammer like Thor does. <laughs> we don't like what he says about himself. And that is, that is something that he, he needs to deal with before he even gets to the, the fact that he's going to tell him to do it as well. In our own lives, this is key for us to understand. We have to come to terms with who he says he is before we can even handle what he tells us to do. Look at him. This is him. Right? We can't avoid it. Who is he is the most important question you're ever going to ask. And where do you find out? Here. Well, why do we avoid this so much? Why do we avoid silence so much? Because we don't like what we read. We want to make it seem like we're so busy. We want to make it seem like, eh, you know, it's not a big deal. I go to church. I hear the Bible read there. But why fundamentally do you not really want to hear more about him? because we have a really difficult time with who he is. I've totally lost my place. <laughs> Peter doesn't like what he says about himself either. And, and, and right, I can't make fun of Peter. Peter is me. Because I'm not kidding. I, 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 if we really stopped and thought about it, we really do wish he was more like Zeus and Thor. And so Peter does the only reasonable thing. Right? It's Peter we're talking about. So Peter is not going to go quietly into the night. Peter is not going to draft a memo. right? He's not going to get everybody together and be like, you know what we need is a conference to explore different ideas about who the Messiah is, share our ideas, and kind of come to a consensus. This is what Luther said a very confusing thing. He said, when you're going to sin, sin big. When you're going to sin, go all out. And that's a very difficult thing to understand. But what I like here is at least Peter's zeal for the word of God. He doesn't understand it to save his life. But at least he cares enough to stop Jesus and take him aside and talk to him when he thinks he's messing it up. So I respect that, if nothing else. Like, okay, I would prefer someone to take me aside and yell at me for sins they think I've committed simply because it will show that they love me. Sometimes that is comforting all in itself. Then we'll work out whether I actually did the thing or not. That's a secondary issue. 
But if there were just more of us like Peter, there is something about what Peter does here is very Job-like. I want to, no, we're gonna, I'm not going to yell at you in front of everybody. I'm going to take you aside, and I'm going to have a conversation with you because I love you, man. I don't think you read Isaiah. I don't think you read Daniel. I don't think you understand what you're talking about. And if we just, I mean, some of us can't even rise to the level of this sin. Most of us can't even get, right? Our sin is that we just don't even say anything. We just take it on the chin. We're just these stoic people. It's like God's going to do what he's going to do, whatever. Right? There's The apathy sometimes is we, we don't even get angry and sinfully angry at him for what he's doing. We don't even care enough for that. There is so much going on in these three verses, it, it's just mind-boggling. Get up, right? You don't like what's going on. You want to know more about it. You want to understand it better. Go to the source. Go to the source. You, you will most likely be as wrong as Peter. But at least he's talking to him. At least he's engaged. And how does Jesus take this? That's what I love, right? Does he, does he get out Thor's hammer? And just crush Peter's head right there. Be like, well, that was nice having you along, buddy. But nobody talks to me like that. Right? Like, think about the Muslims. How they freak out when anybody says, right? You can't make a joke about Muhammad or nothing. Because they will kill you. They will come to your house and burn it down. Like, you do not offend their God. Our God doesn't even, (laughs) he doesn't even have that way of dealing with himself. Right? Peter, I know where you live. I know where your family lives. I know where your boat is. I'm going to burn it. (laughs) Like a mob boss. You're dead. Your kids are dead. Everybody's dead. No, (laughs) Jesus doesn't just take it lying down either, though, right? Oh, man. Okay. You're triggered, Peter. So let's just read Dr. Seuss and just calm down. And No, he doesn't do that either. Right? This is what I love about Jesus. He does the Jesus thing in a way that he does the Messiah thing, he does the Christ thing, he does the God thing, he does the humble thing so well. Because he doesn't lose his temper, but he doesn't take it lying down. And I'm telling you right now, (laughs) of all the terrifying things, could you imagine Jesus' righteous indignation? I mean, can you imagine him angry at you? And he ought to be. That's actually a terrifying thought. And so (laughs) the word that is used for Peter's rebuke is the same word that Jesus used when he rebuked the demons. He rebuked the demons and sent them away. That's the language that we're talking about here. So Peter is worked up. And what does Jesus do? Well, he comes right back at him with the same word. He's like, you telling me? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. And, and the detail in 33 is important. He says, seeing his disciples. So here's Peter and him take, standing aside, and he turns and he sees all of them there. And he understands exactly what they're thinking. And this is what he says. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He, he, he is righteously indignant. But his way of dealing with it is further instruction Husbands, think about that. Parents, think about that. Yes, he is worked up and he ought to be. That kid was doing something they ought not to do. But he doesn't get Thor's hammer and start smacking people with it. right? He doesn't lose his temper. He instructs them further in what they ought to do. 
and what they ought to know. Now, how do you call a guy Satan and then go on like and keep camping in the wilderness with him? I don't know. It just seems... If you're married, you understand how this works, right? The things that we say to one another. But Satan, I mean, Jesus, seems a little harsh, don't you think? I mean, couldn't you call him legion, maybe, or a demon or something? Now, back in Luke chapter 4, at the, at the end of the temptation sequence in the Gospel of Luke, it says something very interesting. It says, Satan withdrew until a more opportune time. So Satan kind of goes away. Well, we know he doesn't go away, but you get what I mean. The next time we see him is when Jesus says this to Peter. Satan is, in fact, here. Satan is, in fact, coming at Jesus with a temptation, just like he did before. But instead of taking him up on a high tower and showing him all the kingdoms of the earth, he's speaking lies through a friend. I'm telling you, I almost should have just done one verse at a time with this. Three weeks. Think about that. Satan will come at you through your spouse. Satan will come at you through the lies of your friends. You (laughs) will be the agency of which lies, things that are untrue, temptations will come to the people that know you. This is why having this mind that we're, we're constantly renewing, that we're constantly refreshing, that we're constantly feeding, that we're constantly putting on, this, this who we are, who he is, we need to be constantly working through this. The guy who just spoke for everybody <laughs> said, you are the Messiah, is now the representative of Satan. This is not hyperbole. The, the, these are lies that Peter is speaking. It is a temptation. Jesus is being tempted. What, what did Satan want? He said, no, don't do it that way. Don't go the way of the cross. I will give you these things. Just worship me and I'll give you everything you want. Satan now, through Peter, is doing the exact same. No, 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 no. Jesus, don't do that. Don't talk about that. What are you doing? That's not the way. That's not the way. We're with you. We got swords. We're men. Let's go and take care of business. Peter is tempting him away from the path of the cross. His friend. Sometimes you are that person. Sometimes the people in your life, right, this is important to understand. You sit down and you talk about your marital problems. There are enemies in the camp. And unless you're renewing your mind, unless you're putting on Christ, you're not going to see these things for what they really are. You're not going to understand them for what they really are. And what you're going to do is just be at one another. Right? That's Satan's down with that. You know, I don't need to tempt that guy away from his wife like with another woman. All I'm going to do is just kind of creep in there, plant some lies, and walk off. Easy. Good luck, Mike. Right? This is how he gets in and, and just messes with everybody. Now, when is the last time you were addressing an issue with your spouse and you said, you know what, sweetie, that, that is a lie that you're believing? Who's the father of lies? You're talking about that person in such a way and that, that what's in your heart is murder. Who's the father of murder? Right? <laughs> Jesus does not pick Peter up and hurl him to Mars. He could. He'd just pick up Peter and be like, you know, see you later. You're making it past the sun. He addresses the real problem. 
Peter, you're here with me, and you know who else is here with us? Satan. And that's the problem. That's where you're at. Get that out of your mind. You're not thinking like me. You're not thinking like God. You're not thinking like the Word of God. You are thinking like Satan. You are thinking of things of this earth. You are thinking of lies and temptation. Get it out. Right. No, no. That, this is rarely how we interact with one another. Right? You said that to me. How dare you? You are the problem. You, kid, are the one who didn't listen. My boss is an idiot. And, and it, what is the thing there that needs to get out? Are we ever, I mean, this, if we could stop and think about this in the moment, that the problem isn't you necessarily, the problem isn't me necessarily, it is the lies, it is the murder, it is the forces of darkness that coming in here, and what do they want? They want to separate you and me, they want to separate us from God, they want, right? Satan wants separation and death, relationships, Friendships, marriages, churches. Get behind me, he says. You are not thinking of the things of God. You are thinking of things of this earth. The presence of the other disciples and the mention of them means that Jesus meant this rebuke for everybody. He means it for the whole church. They undoubtedly shared Peter's conviction that Jesus was in fact wrong and that he necessitated sharp and open rebuke. They're just standing around. Does anybody say, Peter, uh, what are you doing? Why are you talking to him that way? <laughs> just like Adam in the garden, they're just standing around watching it happen, watching Satan do its work, his work. No, listen, everybody, right? And this is a conversation I actually had recently with my own family. You, you, when everybody, afterwards, it's really funny how we all can stand up and be like, yes, we all saw you sin. There's seven of us sitting here. <laughs> and later on, once things have cleared a little, you're like, so um, just to be clear, does everybody think that I sinned? All the hands go up. You're like, okay, well, that's kind of hard to argue with. Where were you guys when I, did you know that it was a sin when I was doing it? Yes. Why, <laughs> why are you waiting till now to tell me? Why are you waiting until now to tell me? Why didn't you tell me when I was doing it? Right? I'm telling you, I don't think they could have crammed more into these three verses. Peter, is, Peter again, is the one speaking up. Amen for that, brother. You're totally wrong, and that's fine. We'll deal with it. But thank you for at least opening your mouth. All these other people are just standing around watching it happen. That is a sin. It's a sin. It's a sin to stand there and watch it happen and say nothing. Do nothing. But what does he do? What does Jesus do? Does he pick them up and drop kick them one by one up to the moon? Right? Does he get out? He's like, here, you know what? Let me grab a, th- a lightning bolt. And I'll just like throw it on an arc and just hit everybody in a circle. Boom. I'll get 12 new disciples. Is that how he reacts? Just totally comes undone? Right? Lightning bolts, bolts flying out of his eyes. He's, no, guys, listen. You're not thinking like I'm thinking. You're not thinking like God thinks. You're thinking like Satan. And you need to get it behind you. You need to turn away from it. You need to expel it. This is the way that authority deals with sin. This is the way that, that one person deals with another person's sin. This is the way that we deal with one another. This is the way we deal with our spouses and our children and, and our coworkers. 
there are lies in this place. There are, there, the, Satan is sneaking into this garden and he's trying to mess things up and we're not going to let him do it. And the only way to do it is what? You're going to just suddenly figure it out all by yourself? Put on the mind of Christ. Think like he thinks. And then do as he does. There are two ways of looking at, at anything. There are two ways of thinking about things. There are two ways to receive information. There, there, are, there are only two kingdoms. There, there is a one side of the coin and the other side of the coin. There's only two options, two masters. There's only two perspectives, gods and not gods. Right? Nobody. It's not like a sliding scale over here. Where it's like, well, you know, here's truth, and then, oh, the Mormons are close, so they're here, you know, and then Mormonism's here, that's fine, okay, so atheism's out here. It's not a sliding scale. It's, you either think like God or you don't. Now, the tricky part about the story is, what does Peter do? He does both. Man, that is rough. (laughs) Do you see yourself in that? Do you see yourself in that? Right? Like, <laughs> I was listening to praise music in the car, and something happened, and I, like, I threw something in my car while the praise music was on. I was like, that took two seconds. I mean, like, literally, the verse was, I mean, the chorus was on my tongue, and then I'm cursing. And you're like, how did. Yeah, there are only two ways of thinking. What happens? We're over here where we ought to be, and, and boom, we're over here. There's a wife, she's doing fine, everything's great, then boom, she's over here. Your kids are fine, right? They're more like sort of both categories constantly, it seems like to me. But whatever, we'll, we'll be fair. They're over here, and then they slip over here. The only person who's only always over here is Jesus. We all slip over here. And what we constantly need is, is, is an adjustment back to this. Because most of our lives, <laughs> we literally are just kind of through life this way, like Peter. And what we need is a solid foundation here. What we need is to constantly come back here. What we constantly need is to come back to the word of God and, and think about these things again, and then to really make sure that we got the lesson, go and do them. It's the only way. What ought we to believe? What ought we to do? The godly person is deeply concerned about the things of God, but the godless person has no concern for the things of God, even if they are a professor of Jesus' messiahship. Godly thinking, ungodly thinking. And you toggle back and forth. Now, let's talk about this for a moment, the anger that Peter has and how it manifests itself. See, people hate God, but they can't get at him, right? Right? Has anyone ever been able to take a shotgun, climb into heaven, and kill God? Right? If you hate him in your heart, it's like murdering him. But who can lay their hands on him? So what happens is, is this is what homicide is. It's actually deicide. I can't get at him, but I can get at his image. I find an image of him, and I'm going to pummel it. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to wreck it. I'm going to mutilate it. And that is what is in the heart of man. What is in the heart of man is we can't lay our hands on him, so we lay our hands on his image. And my point here is this, is that, again, most of us probably have never gone outside and shake, shaken an angry fist at the sky. 
But how often have you disciplined a child in anger? How often are you losing your temper? How often are you fussing? How often are you blustering? How often do you, does your attitude sour in an instant? And what is that? That is God in his providence is being God and doing the things that God does, and you don't like it. Well, and I can't lay my hands on God. He's too far away. <laughs> I'm a Calvinist. I understand how this works. So what I'm going to do is find his image, and I'm going to go after that. I can't spank God, but I can spank a kid, right? Because I was having a great time sitting there on the back porch, smoking my pipe. Now I've got to get up and deal with this. And I don't like that God did that. I don't like that he let it in my house. And I can't lay my hands on him, but I can lay my hands on this kid, <laughs> right? You don't have enough money to pay for things. Now, there's a lot to be said about that, right? But you can't go into heaven and yell at God for not letting you win the lottery. You can't lay your hands on him. Right, But what do spouses can lay their hands on one another? They can scream at each other. And, and this is a, are you, you probably don't think that you have a problem personally with God and his ways. You probably don't think that you're taking him aside and rebuking him. If you are losing your temper, that is exactly what you are doing. If you find yourself getting angry by, the, by life happening, you have a problem with God. And you're, and you're dangerous at that point because you can't get at him. But there are lots of his image bearers all over the place, right? And you're like, no, 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 no. It's that guy's liberalism that I hate. It's the fact that they're down with abortion. That's what, no, no. You're, you're angry at God and you're taking it out on his image where you find it. Again, you're here and then you're here. And what does he call us to? Come back. Come back. Follow me. Humble yourself. This, this, this right here, I want you to get closer to me, and the only way to get closer to me is going down. <laughs> right? And that's what we don't like. And, 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 and so when we go from here today, this is what we need. We need to know that we can slip from here to here. In <laughs> you can't even measure the time. You can't even measure the time. And you constantly need to be going back over here putting on the mind of Jesus Christ. His humility, his humility, his humility, his obedience, his obedience, his obedience. And you need to just go back to the lesson and go back to the lesson and go back to the lesson and you will wake up one day in glory, glorified. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your ministry to us that just is so dynamic, so all-encompassing. You are the, the, the God of heaven and earth. You are the God of history. You are the God of our lives. You know every hair on our head. You design our lives perfectly for our heart issues. We pray, Lord God, that we would not turn away from you, that we would not get angry with you, that we would not go after your image bearers, but that we would repent, that we would confess, that we would put on the mind of God, that we would understand ourselves, that we would understand you, that we would understand this world better, so that we may draw near to you in joy, that we may praise you in joy, that we may love one another. And amen.